0: Welcome to Justice Studio Sessions. I am Marianne Moore, Foundress of Justice Studio. During these sessions, we will be exploring the social justice themes that have emerged through Justice Studio's work, showcase grassroots activism, and deep dive into ethical and equitable research and consultancy methods. Stay tuned to learn more about the complexities of social justice and how you can turn your passion into action. Hello, dear listeners. Today, we're going to be talking about fear and anxiety in organisations. Now, this is a subject which I think is really fascinating and really crucial, not just to consultancy or those working in organisations to try and improve them, But it's also generally important for anybody that works in an organisation and within our personal lives as well. Because many of the ways that an organisation shows fear and anxiety are replicated in every other aspect of our life. We can see it in our interpersonal relationships, our one-on-one relationships, our families, with our friends... It's so crucial to understand human behaviour and how we can live a better and less fearful and anxious life. This episode is going to be just you and I, it's going to be Marianne Solo. So let's get started. I want to start by just talking about work and how work has changed over the last few centuries, because it's really important to understand where we got to the amount of fear and anxiety we have in our organisations today. So particularly taking the Western context, the context of the UK and of America, let's think about the major work trends that have happened over the last few hundred years. Because of course, In the olden days, there was a very different work culture. The majority of the population would have been peasants toiling the land. And this land was owned by landowners. But peasants had free right to roam amongst the land and to live off the land. And essentially, most of the work that they did wasn't for wages. It was merely for their own subsistence and their family's subsistence. But this all began to change as enclosure happened so during the 14th to the 19th century the landowners of england began to gradually enclose the land which meant that they evicted the english peasants and instead turned over the land that would have been toiled for family subsistence into grazing land for sheep And the reason they did this was because wool was a lot more lucrative in terms of cost than just renting out to these peasants. And this fundamentally changed the pattern of work in the UK because it meant that peasants who had been turfed off the land had to end up earning their way of life through wages. So they were then employed as wage labourers on the land that they'd been evicted from or they emigrated to the cities and as part of the industrial revolution which happened from 1760 to 1840 they became part of the factory workforce so really through this whole period we see a massive change from a system of land cultivation and being at one with the land to moving into these places where whereby people had wages and they had jobs and they had bosses rather than landlords. So with the industrial revolution there was also dramatic changes in general working practices so factories as they were established became mechanised and workers worked on a production line, they performed repetitive tasks and they did this in a way that was meant to be as efficient as possible and of course we must remember that there were lots of people who were objecting to this and rebelling against this but essentially the industrial revolution won out and what happened was that we shifted from craftsmanship over products to efficiency in products and mass produced things factory working was glorified as modern And workers effectively became cogs in the machine. So then from the late 19th and early 20th century, the factory system, which entailed this increased division of labour, became really common. And people's jobs were broken down into these like component parts to make them more efficient. In the 1920s, it was quite interesting that there were experiments done at the Hawthorne Works, which was a Western electric factory just outside Chicago in the United States and they did these experiments to try and work out how could they make workers more productive. They would play around with the light making it low or bright so that they could work out whether it was the low lights that made the factory workers work harder or the bright lights that made the factory workers work harder. In fact what they realised was that they were working harder whatever happened And this was because the light wasn't having an effect, but the fact that the workers knew that they were being observed had an effect. This became known as the Hawthorne effect, and the influence of being observed is now an established psychological principle. And around this time, there were all sorts of other people kind of meddling around to try and work out how can we make people more efficient. So the man who's credited with being the very first management consultant, who was Frederick Winslow-Taylor, He did a load of studies looking at time motion and trying to establish how he could kind of break down each job into its tiny, tiny components, timing each part and then rearranging the parts into the way that would be the most efficient way of working. He and his colleagues, who were these first management consultants, were basically trying to work out how they could kind of force workers to work as hard as they could, and stop them kind of not working, which they called soldiering, because they said this was a deliberate attempt by workers to keep employers ignorant of how fast they could work. So they really resulted in this ideology that became really popular at the beginning of the 20th century, which was all about efficiency, all about productivity, and essentially turning workers into machines. This idea is known as Taylorism and we can see its effects still today because trends that have gone on in management practice have really been about increasing efficiency and productivity. And as a part of all of this, the values of control has been a really accepted and central Value. We can see this in today's performance targets and the different controls that organisations impo- impose on workers in order to monitor staff and ensure control. Now, these same practices that were targeted at looking at workers' efficiency, as we move into the middle of the 20th century and the work of latter management consultants, we can see that these types of tests and ways of ensuring that things could be as efficient and productive as possible were brought in, but at an organizational level. So we have tools such as the value chain analysis, which break every aspect of a business process down so that you could try and work out if it was the most efficient way of doing something as possible, if it was the cheapest way of doing something as possible and moving different functions such as HR and other back office functions into different places, and essentially kind of breaking up an organisation so that it can become all about being as absolutely efficient as possible. And the effect of this kind of work on the human beings that actually work in these organisations is that the working environment becomes a place where they don't feel as if they're valued and as if they are comfortable and at home. Obviously, if you move your HR out of your office, it's going to have a very different effect personally for the people working in that organisation. But these kind of personal effects get ignored in this drive to make things cheaper. And and this move, which I think a lot of management consultants need to take responsibility for throughout the 20th century has left this sense of alienation from work. A sense of alienation that began when workers got turfed off the land and then were just considered wage labourers in factories and then increasingly did not have any of the joy of creating and crafting a product but were just a tiny part of its creation and now we are in this situation whereby we are very alienated from anything that makes our work enjoyable and makes our work feel good. And What we're left with is a kind of vicious cycle where workers feel alienated or unconnected to the outcomes of their work. And at the same time, managers can sense this alienation and feel anxious about the fact that their workers aren't doing what they need to. And so they intensify their ways of trying to get their workers to do what they need to by using command and control techniques. They believe essentially that their workers can't be trusted so that if they don't impose really, really strict controls, then nothing will get done. But this culture of fear that comes from the management then permeates throughout the whole organisation and seeps into its pores. And of course today, not all of us work in factories, many of us work in offices, many of us are also working remotely and from home, but these kind of values and ideologies have been subsumed within us so that now very much we feel the pressure of having to live up to this ideology. And even if we can't put our finger on it, we know the expectation around how we work and we know the consequences of what will happen if we don't work as hard as we think we must. And today we live in an organizational culture that glorifies control. It glorifies efficiency and productivity and it means that we operate more and more in this fearful and anxiety-inducing environment where we fear being told that we're not being efficient or that we're not being productive. And we find that fear is rife throughout many contemporary organisations and this is both in the private sector and in the public sector. In the private sector, we can see it in people feeling like they're not able to take time off if they're sick or feeling the pressure to answer emails and telephone calls about work late at night and across the weekend, feeling as if they cannot take their holidays and not being able to tell their boss if they feel upset about something. It can be a very hierarchical culture where command and control goes And there isn't much recourse for a normal employee to suggest other ways of doing things. And in the public sector, you can see it in terms of the amount of targets that are thrown at services such as healthcare, or the police, or probation service. Many of these targets are not about actually helping the people that they're there to serve. They're about making sure that people are doing things as efficiently as possible, that they're getting as many numbers as possible, as many arrests, or as many people seen as quickly as possible. And it really takes out this idea that you might want to actually spend time with people and give them proper care. In many public sector organisations, there's also this real idea that you can be blamed or this fear that you can be blamed for not meeting your targets for heaven forbid causing harm. When such mistakes happen within the public sector, it is individual employees that get blamed. It is not the wider, fearful, anxiety-driven culture. Essentially, all of these things are creating an environment at work, which is pretty horrible. And a number of statistics over the last few years shows that work has become a massive source of fear and anxiety for many. Annual UK and US studies that monitor workplace trends around the world have painted a picture of a depressed and anxious workforce. For example, the UK Government Skills and Employment Survey in 2012 found that fear in the UK was at a 20-year high and that British employees were feeling more insecure than at any time in the last two decades. Public sector workers felt less secure than private ones. So fear and anxiety within organisations is real and it has massive effects on our own work lives and our personal lives, as well as our mental health. It's time we did something about it. And this is one of the roles that I see as crucial for the management consultant today. But this breed of consultants needs to be compassionate and we need to move away from this idea of Taylorism and go back to what it means to be human. To do this, we need to understand how fear and anxiety manifest itself in organisations and how we can change it. So, maybe it would help just to define fear and anxiety. So, fear is one of our most powerful emotions. It's defined as an unpleasant emotion caused by the threat of danger, pain, or harm. And it evolved for a reason. It was there to warn us and to protect us and to give us the power of self-preservation. So even though it feels kind of nasty, it does have a really important use. But it's an emotion without borders, which makes it difficult to pin down and define. And it seems that we often act instinctively in response from fear even when we don't realise it and especially when we don't have time to make decisions. Our fear mechanisms can take over and make us do behaviours that we might not do if we were not fearful. Anxiety is a subset of fear, it's a state of alert, of heightened readiness to respond. And when a situation makes us anxious, we tend to flash back to similar anxious situations in the past and react in whatever way we learned to react as kids. When we feel fear or anxiety, we are most likely to respond in four main ways. The two most commonly known are to fight or give flight, to run away but there are also two other fear reactions. One is freeze, and the other one is known variously as to fawn, to fright, or to tend and befriend. And that encapsulates when you might want to placate the person that you're scared of and behave in a different way. So to those faced with an immediate threat, the quick fix has an overwhelming appeal not just because it is a fix but because it's quick and our physical energy that comes when we are scared makes us want to do something but that means that we can behave in ways that are helpful or in fact harmful to us so if we bring this together if we acknowledge that when we feel threatened or scared or anxious the main instincts that we have are to either fight flight freeze or fawn, but that most of these responses are not very appropriate responses to threats arising in the workplace. We have to acknowledge that our bodies are constantly preparing us to do what our minds have no intention of doing. And this psychological arousal for which we have no use is called stress. And so we find ourselves in many instances at work in this state of stress. What we don't realise is that fear is very easily and unconsciously communicated to others. So when we're fearful, it can cause us to convey symptoms of fear without really being aware of it. For example, we might make a fearful face, we might start moving, or we might freeze, and we will do things which make other people realise that we're scared. And this then involuntarily catapults the fear to them and they start being scared. So fear and anxiety are very, very contagious feelings. Now, it's really important to remember that humans are social beings, but humans are also always influenced by two counterbalancing forces. And these are important life forces that govern all of our relationships. They are the call to be an individual, individuality, and the call to be together, this sense of togetherness. So all of our behaviour is simultaneously influenced by these two forces. Individuality inclines people to follow their own directives, to be independent and distinct. But togetherness inclines people to respond to the directives of others, be dependent and to be connected and be an indistinct entity. So both individuality and togetherness are biological and learned and we can understand our own comfortableness with individuality and togetherness from our attachment styles, our family dynamics and our societal values and beliefs. So depending on what we feel more comfortable with we may experience togetherness as a pressure which can be anxiety inducing or we can experience individuality as a pressure and then that can be anxiety inducing. And these tensions and pressures that we feel to be either an individual or to be part of a group can be at the root of our personal internal conflicts and they are a way that anxiety and fear gets expanded in groups and systems. Okay, so you probably just want some examples, like how can you know that you're living in a fearful organisation? Well, there are quite a lot of different signs to show that you might be. I mean, for a start, you could just feel if you feel anxious or fearful when you go to work or when you're at work. But also there are some wider objective looks at an organisation which can show that it might be based on a fear-based culture. So first, there may be a preoccupation with status and conformity and Rules might be much more important than people just acting acting with common sense. Then there is a feeling that distinct in-groups exist and you're either in or out. There may be a situation where there are appraisals but they're only ever one way, so they're only ever top down and there's little opportunity to give feedback to those higher up. And the environment may be about being fast and on short-term gains rather than the long-term gains. Other people have noticed that you could see things like people taking sides with other people instead of a thoughtful stand on certain issues. That might be turf battles with people asserting their territory to the detriment of the organisation as a whole. There might be feuding and backstabbing. There could be blaming and scapegoating, so excessive focusing on the shortcomings of particular individuals or departments. You could see situations of overwork, with people burying themselves in tasks in order to avoid problematic interactions or hoping that increased productivity will somehow solve the problem conflicting instructions and mixed messages from leadership bold new initiatives might be being constantly announced and then quickly abandoned and you might find that there is examples of distancing whereby people don't say what they really think in meetings and there's a lack of communication between adversaries people kind of hiding out in their offices or cubicles and finally a really useful way of identifying an organization with a fear and anxiety culture is when you see heavy turnover so people just leaving the organization to get away from it it's always useful to remember that two different systems operate in an organization you have the rational system and you have the emotional system according to the rational system It sets out different roles and responsibilities and they're clearly divided and compartmentalised. And the rational system is basically what is formally written. So what is on your mission statement, what is in your policies and what is on your job description. It's the kind of stuff that should be exactly how the organisation is run. However, in many cases, it's not. The emotional system is how we really learn about an organisation. And sadly, often what happens is that the emotional system is not in line with the rational system. So for example, even though the rational system might say that there are officially stated goals, values, policies, procedures, job roles, et cetera, there that isn't actually what happens on an average working day. The culture is completely different. Different things are awarded, different things are punished and there may be a lack of accountability and what we know is that as humans we may read the rational system and we may want to believe in the rational system but we will really only ever believe the emotional system so when what is actually happening in an organization the culture and what is happening between individuals and between management and employees when that is saying something very different from the rational system then we will believe the emotional system and we will ignore the rational. Now as we've acknowledged in our organisations which are full of humans the anxiety of one can very easily be transmitted throughout the whole group and this is important to remember as we consider all of the different ways that Fear, anxiety and stress can manifest. So in general, if we think about kind of a group of humans, we perceive threats from three different sources. So this could be an external threat to the entire group, it could be threats to the whole group from within the group, or it could be threats to an individual by the group. Now in most organisations, threats to the whole group arise from external sources and they are discussed openly. They're kind of relatively easy to get your head around. But the threats to an organisation that arise from within it are not so often able to be named and openly discussed by its leaders because these kinds of threats tend to undermine that human wanting to be together so they undermine the group togetherness. So because of this uncomfortableness, these threats end up getting talked about only really in private huddles. And they beget a sense of chronic painful anxiety where no one can seem to really agree on what the threat is or what to do about it. By their nature, internal threats tend to be separate members of an organisation and they can even manifest in certain members of an organisation being pitted against each other. And because there's no collective agreement about the nature of this threat, it just doesn't get addressed. So if you're trying to do something constructive about an internal threat, you might be aligned with some people but not with others, or some people may perceive you, yourself, as the internal threat. The final type of threat, threats to people as individuals, can manifest in forms such as being fired or laid off or also other kinds of ways such as being put on a disciplinary or at least being singled out for low levels of productivity or efficiency and so they can cause a lot of anxiety but there are also other more subtle individual threats such as just being in generally concerned about the performance of your department, your team or worries about your boss or worries about those you line manage. And these individual or personal anxieties, they don't threaten the survival of the whole group. But the fact that these anxieties are seldom acknowledged and pinpointed means that it makes matters worse in general. Because the less clearly an anxiety is articulated, because you might not even know that you're worried about these things, the more it affects all members of the group on an unconscious, instinctual level as a stress that they don't know how to relieve. So of these three types of threat, external threats to the entire group are much more easy to navigate because you can all band together as a group and you can unite against this external force, which is often why governments may take us to war if they think that, They need to engender some form of solidarity amongst the population. But then threats to the whole group from within the group are really, really tricky because it means that you don't know who is the enemy and who is your friend. It can mean that the whole group feels anxious and they don't really understand it. And then threats to specific individuals by the group are not just felt by the individual themselves, they're felt by everyone. And they're even harder to pinpoint because not everybody is threatened by being fired. But that doesn't stop the whole organisation from feeling kind of this underlying anxiety about this potential firing. Now, because we have these two forces of individuality and togetherness. And because humans are these inherently social creatures, when faced with an immediate threat, groups tend to gravitate towards togetherness. So when anxiety in a group runs high, there are many pressures to be together. Emotionally, the individual can get fused with the group so that the threat to the group is felt as if it's a threat to the self. So to the extent that individuals are fused with the group, this can mean that they lose the ability to think independently of it. On an unconscious level, the group will collectively agree to either avoid discussing facts and issues that raise anxiety or act in ways that don't make much rational sense. This is where we get groupthink. And this is where we get this phenomena of the herd, when we think of a herd of wildebeests running from one place to another because they've heard a loud noise. We all act in this instinctual group herd mentality. Nevertheless, because people vary in the amount of closeness and distance they prefer, because they're either somebody that likes to go for individuality or for togetherness, When they're anxious they may crave and actively seek greater closeness through pursuit or feel the need to withdraw and distance. So you might have somebody who is a togetherness person when they feel really really anxious they want to be as close as possible to those around them. They want to talk to them, they want to hang around them, they want to feel as if they're the centre of their attention and this they feel will calm them down. However for other people if they are more individuality focused when they feel anxiety they may want to withdraw, they want to be on their own, they want to be away from the group and they don't want to feel pressured to do or say or act in any other way and you can see that when you team an anxious person who is seeking togetherness with an anxious person who is seeking to individuate You have this difficulty where both of the goals are not going to be met. You have this pursuit and distancing. The togetherness person is running after the one that wants to be individual and the individual one is running away from the person that wants to be together. And this isn't really necessarily about the person, it's just because of how each of these people feel their anxiety and want to soothe their anxiety. Now do you get how this could happen at work and it can happen in our personal relationships as well? So actually particularly when the ways that we're anxious conflict with other people who are anxious you can see that the solutions we have for trying to soothe our own fear and anxiety can end up making the situation worse because of course for somebody who is trying to be together and they are faced with somebody who doesn't want to be together with them at all that's going to make them way more anxious and for somebody that just wants to be alone being pursued by somebody who wants to be together with them the fact that they're being pursued by them and won't let them be alone is going to make them even more anxious and so the collective anxiety increases and it makes the situation worse. Let's talk about a way that anxiety can be manifested within pairs of people, so in your relationships, but also within government departments or departments of a business or different units or functions of a business or organization. And this is the concept of overfunctioning and underfunctioning. So, overfunctioning and underfunctioning are two ways. Of responding to anxiety. You are over functioning if what you do puts you one up on the other person. For example this could include worrying a lot about someone else including worrying about your staff in ways that you can't really control such as doing your staff's job for them or worrying about their mental health or kind of overly behaving as if your employees are your patients rather than people who work for you. It can manifest in thinking you know what's best for somebody else, so jumping to conclusions about how you think people will react or not allowing others to make up their own minds about a situation, protecting people from certain realities or placating people instead of letting them face uncomfortable truths. It can involve giving advice before it's requested. So this is a way of making explicit that you think you know better than the other person and what's good for them. It implies that you think you're smarter. You could also be somebody that expects others to do it your way. You're overfunctioning if you start taking over people's jobs, micromanaging or presenting people with solutions before they have time to think for themselves or explore different options. Overfunctioning also includes completely taking over somebody else's task without being asked and believing that you are responsible for the way that somebody else feels. Overfunctioners typically imagine that they can and should make others feel better. Now, if you're an underfunctioner, then you take the one down position. So, what you might find yourself doing is not making decisions. So you might worry about kind of taking a course of action that might not be good. And so you kind of put off making decisions. You might wait for somebody else to decide or just let events take their course. Or if an underfunctioner is a manager, subordinates can feel unclear about what the boss's expectations of them are, and they might be unable to move forward with projects because the boss doesn't want to make any decisions. You might find that you're constantly seeking advice. So expressing your own best thinking and asking another person for feedback is really useful. But if you ask advice without expressing your thoughts, it can be volunteering to take the one down position. The under-functioner tends to just dump the problem or the question into the lap of the nearest over-functioner you might find that you can habitually let others have their own way and it's great to compromise and to accommodate people sometimes but when you're under functioning you give in without even mentioning your own needs and preferences and that comes because we're afraid that we'll be considered difficult if we say what we really think. So the people who are being accommodated don't realise that there's a conflict but in fact you are not being true to yourself because you're not saying what you really want. You might also find that because you haven't taken initiative, you end up being at the mercy of different emergencies and disasters which have kind of happened from a result of not taking decisions earlier on down the line or not communicating issues or not communicating what you think or what you want. And when these kind of bad decisions prevail, even though you know that there are important pitfalls and drawbacks to the issues, this can mean that you're inadvertently creating more problems than you're solving by not even saying your opinion. So, underfunctioners can tend to adopt a weak or a helpless persona, and they can also believe that others are responsible for their feelings. So, when we underfunction, we can imagine that we feel the way that we do because of what someone else is doing. And that therefore, the way to fix this is that others should make us feel better. When you look at all of these things, it's really easy to see how overfunctioners and underfunctioners kind of fit together like pairs of a glove. One person's overfunctioning is basically the kind of enabler of another person's under-functioning and one person's under-functioning is the enabler of another person's over-functioning. Neither over-functioning or under-functioning is right or wrong, it's just a pattern of relationship that we can fall into without often realising it. When we think about the problems at work that an under-functioner might have they're going to be saying things like, Why is my boss micromanaging me all the time? And the overfunctioner is going to be saying, Why do I have to do everybody else's job for them? Or why do I have to be responsible for everybody else's problems? Now, the underlying anxiety that comes for the overfunctioner is that if they don't overfunction, all of the anxiety will be released. So they're essentially over-functioning in order to cover up an underlying sense of anxiety. So for the over-functioner what happens is that their anxiety is felt the moment they stop over-functioning. And for the under-functioner the anxiety comes with fearing that they're going to make mistakes or fearing that they're going to be rejected if they stand up for themselves. So the Underfunctioner is kind of worried by the prospect of exercising their own power. It is that which rouses the anxiety. And in both cases, essentially the underfunctioner and the overfunctioner are functioning in this way in order to stave off their anxiety. The answer to an underfunctioner saying, How can I get my boss to stop micromanaging you? is to stop underfunctioning. And the answer to how can I get the underfunctioner to shape up is to stop overfunctioning. Really, as soon as one person stops either their overfunctioning or their underfunctioning behaviour, the other is forced to accept that you will no longer be part of this overfunctioning and underfunctioning pair and they have to change their behaviour. Now, I know for overfunctioners, because I am one, that some of the main worry of overfunctioning comes because you worry that if you stop overfunctioning then the underfunctioner will suddenly be thrown back on their own resources and they won't be able to survive but actually underfunctioning as a way of relating to others has very little to, to do with objective competence usually the underfunctioner would survive perfectly well if you stopped over-functioning. It's just that you've got into this kind of toxic dance. Now, of course, this is not always true. However, as over-functioners, we can very often do more damage to underfunctioners by continuing to over-function for them than just by letting them live their own lives. It can be especially hard to stop overfunctioning, if the underfunctioner is your subordinate, however, if you are the boss and you need that person to do work, you can make a pretty good argument for the fact that somebody's performance is your responsibility. However, there are certain things that are within your ability to control and certain things that are out of your ability to control. So you aren't responsible for certain people's feelings you aren't responsible for certain people doing their work. You are responsible for enabling them to know the objectives and the goals that they're trying to carry out and for giving them all of the support that they need to do the work. But you can't be responsible for that actually doing the work. That is something that they need to be responsible for themselves. And if they need help, then they can ask you for it. For the overfunctioner. It can be useful to think instead of the idea that you feel responsible for somebody, try and recognise that actually this responsibility you're feeling is anxiety. And if you're the under-functioner, then you're more likely to realise that you are anxious than the over-functioner because the over-functioner acts to cover up the knowledge of their anxiety, but the under-functioner doesn't act because they feel fear. The underlying anxiety comes when you make a conscious effort to understand and act on your own desires and wants, because you imagine that if you say no, initiate something or take more responsibility, that either you will fail or you will somehow lose your relationships. The fact that you are more aware of the anxiety can be really helpful. It can be helpful for you to be able to just identify where and with whom you are particularly underfunctioning. You can acknowledge where you have got into a difficult situation with an overfunctioner who may be dominating you or making you do things that you don't want to do. And getting out of it includes just being more in touch with your wants and desires and gradually starting to assert yourself. So, that you can kind of take that deep breath and be able to take more responsibility for things. Now, I think it's pretty easy to see individual relationships where you have an overfunctioner and an underfunctioner, but it is also so prevalent that you have groups of people that overfunction and groups of people that underfunction. So, for example, you might have one organization or department which ends up overfunctioning and doing the work of another department who might be underfunctioning and this dynamic is replicated across the public sector across the private sector in all different places if we can all take a step back and acknowledge where we might be overfunctioning and where we might be underfunctioning or where our departments may be overfunctioning or underfunctioning then we can begin to break the cycle of this fear and anxiety, which will be running like water through our organisations and our work and personal life. One of the things that can flow through an anxious and fearful organisation is blame. Now, where two or more people are gathered, conflict is going to be natural and inevitable. And when we're looking for someone to blame, the more we blame them, the more that person seems to present as if they are completely blameworthy. Blame is about trying to put responsibility on somebody for some problem or mishap, and they tries to attribute this problem to the person that caused it. The clearer it is who is responsible for something the less anybody actually cares about blame because groups are most preoccupied with blame in situations where the origin of the problem is difficult to pinpoint and blame can be the acute focus of a group's chronic anxiety when a systemic problem is going round and round in vicious cycles those affected just want to get rid of that feeling And so they respond as if by blaming somebody, it's going to get rid of that pain. They all know that they weren't the ones that started it, but systemic problems co-evolve and they have no clear starting point. So by blaming somebody, you arbitrarily identify one individual or event as the cause of these kind of like horrible events that happen afterwards. This is really unfortunate for the blamed because they can basically just be blamed because loads of people need to blame somebody. And it's already clear to see how this problem doesn't just happen in organisations, but it has it happens at a wider societal level when we want to blame criminals for bad things that have happened in our society. We want to scapegoat certain people like immigrants and things and why blaming can somehow we think it can somehow relieve this anxiety and fear that is within us and we just don't really know where it came from so in organizations where anxiety is often expressed in blame and also in countries where anxiety is often expressed in blame to avoid being blamed becomes a constant preoccupation of most people so people's attention shifts from avoiding a potential problem to avoiding being blamed for it. And this means that people act not in the way that might be the most appropriate for the situation, but in a fearful way to preserve themselves from being blamed by others. Scapegoating is a variation on blame in which a single individual becomes the sole focus of a group's anxiety. That person comes to be thought of as the problem itself, rather than just the participant in certain bad things that have happened. Now, the usual scapegoat in a situation is the group's most reactive member. And they're the person who feels the collective anxiety most acutely and acts out of it most conspicuously. So this person's weakness makes everybody else feel stronger. By everybody blaming this person or this group, it makes everybody else feel much better. And as one member of the group gets stuck in the scapegoat position, the others then distance themselves. It's as if the weak member is somehow contagious, and the more they are reluctant to associate with them, the more they tend to talk about this scapegoat amongst themselves. This can give them greater solidarity with each other, which reduces their own anxiety, but also it reduces the awareness of their responsibility in this situation, either their responsibility for causing the situation in the first place or their responsibility for scapegoating people. And then on the other side, the scapegoat, who is increasingly isolated may find an ally in someone whose response to anxiety is to kind of protect them. But more often than not, they're usually dealt with by being completely cut off by the organisation. They can be dismissed, they can resign, or in a societal level, they can be sent to prison. And dealing with a conflict in this way, usually it might help in terms of kind of the surface symptom But it also cuts us off from the underlying issue, as well as the person. The thing that caused the original anxiety hasn't changed. It's just that one person has been blamed for it. But once you've blamed one person or one group of people for a systemic problem, it doesn't change the actual problem. It just allows everyone to ignore the fact that the problem is systemic. Scapegoating, once the person is outside of the organisation, can help the group as a whole because now the threat is external and they can band together and, and we can reinforce this togetherness and feel solidarity. But it doesn't stop the underlying problem and therefore it will reoccur and then... Another scapegoat will need to be found and then it will reoccur again. And this is how you can see that on a wider scale, we constantly have situations whereby, when people are more worried about things, when they're more econ- worried about the economy, then we find there is a singling out of people to blame for situations that are just continuing to exist such as the economic condition, inequality, all of these problems that we're facing on a grander scale, we're constantly needing to try and find scapegoats for them without tackling the underlying problems. Now, I love the study of fear and anxiety in organisations because it just helps so much to understand our individual relationships, our organizational relationships, and our state relationships. You can see it at every single level. How we react in our tiny one-on-one relationships is the same way that groups of people react in organizations, in businesses, in government, and it's the same way that groups of people act in states why we go to war with each other, why we're so upset with each other. It all stems from our own fear and anxiety and the fact that we are trying to get rid of our own fear and anxiety through the ways that we feel most comfortable. By either seeking togetherness or by seeking to individuate, by trying to get close to groups or by running away from groups, by trying to push people outside of groups or bring people into groups. Everything is so connected and so important. And this is why I kind of just want everyone in the whole world to understand about fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety is the thing that we need to address. We need to be confronting our own feelings as the best way of sorting out the problems in the world. We need to each be taking individual responsibility about how we act on our emotions. We need to be better at self awareness so that we're clear that somehow when we're acting in a way that is difficult, it's because we have this underlying issue inside or this underlying fear inside. Now, Fear and Anxiety in Organisations is one of my most important modules in the training course that I've developed which is called Compassionate Consultancy and I am going to be teaching this module also as a standalone workshop so that it can be accessed by anybody. So you can either have it as part of the course which in person is on the 13th of March to the 15th of March or online and the course starts on Thursday the 21st of March and it's every Thursday for the next six weeks. But the Managing Anxiety, Trauma and Conflict module, which is where some of the content that I've talked about here comes from, is on Thursday the 25th of April 2024. So if you are interested in learning more about managing anxiety then it would be great to see you at this workshop. In this workshop, I'm going to go much more in depth into anxiety and fear and how it manifests in organizations. So, we've already talked about overfunctioning and underfunctioning, but there are also other concepts such as triangling and pushback, which are really, really key to acknowledging how organizations operate. I've also developed loads of practical based on real-life case studies for you to work through some of these concepts. And we're not just going to be talking about anxiety and fear. (laughs) We're going to be talking about other exciting things, such as trauma. So looking at trauma-informed responses and also looking at how to deal with conflict in organisations. So basically, this workshop is really, really, really there to address and sort out and manage the most difficult problems that you face, either when you're being a consultant or when you're just working in an organisation. If you're a manager, if you're an employee, whoever you are, it's useful to understand these concepts and how you can actually stop the fear and anxiety or at least manage it because, to be honest, we can't totally stop fear and anxiety and sometimes it does have a positive effect because it can help us to you know be spurred on to certain actions and you know there's all sorts of of ways that it can be utilized but in general we don't want to be existing in overly fearful or overly anxious situations so this workshop will help with that it'd be great to see you there now I'm going to put all of the links to the workshop in the show notes as well as all of the different books and sources that I've used as a reference for this episode So anything you want to read further then find that in the show notes. And of course there's also the option of talking to me about your specific issues with fear and anxiety in organisations via an advisory session. Those sessions are an hour long and they can focus on whatever it is that you need to get through and we can work it out together. So that's it for this episode of Justice Studio sessions. I hope you've found it helpful and I'd be really keen to hear all of your reflections on what I have set out and whether or not you think you're an overfunctioner or an underfunctioner. Thanks so much until next time. For listening to Justice Studio sessions. We have so enjoyed deep diving into social justice with you. Justice Studio provides compassionate consultancy rooted in social justice. If you would like to work with us, please visit our website at www.justicestudio.org or email us at infojusticestudio.org. This podcast relies on your support. If you love our content and would like to see this podcast reach more people, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating or leave us a lovely review. We would be delighted for you to share your thoughts, musings or favourite parts of the podcast with us on social media. You can tag and or follow Marianne at creatrix.london and Justice Studio at Justice Studio on all the major social sites. This podcast was hosted by Marianne Moore and produced by Justice Studio Limited. The music was by Luke Fraser at The Tonic, and the artwork was by Marianne. Thank you so much for listening.